We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark woods, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? So welcome again to the Beatrice Institute podcast. It's been quite a while since I've recorded a new episode. I'm really excited to be back. I'm especially excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Francis Sue. So Dr. Sue is the Benedictson Carwatt Professor of Mathematics at Harvey Mudd College. He recently wrote a book that I've found very interesting called The Mathematics for Human Flourishing. So as many listeners know, I'm very interested in how the promotion of human flourishing might be understood as the central animating principle of applied sciences, particularly health sciences and engineering. And Dr. Sue is trying to do something similar in the practice and teaching of mathematics. So I'm excited to talk with him about many of the concepts that animate his book. And I want to say at the outset, we both realized that we were overcoming colds. So our voices might be a little scratchy. So but we thought this is a good, we, we were excited enough to have this conversation that we thought we'd push through some imperfect voices. So it's good to be back. So Francis, it's great to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I want to start out first with a uh, basic conversation about some definitions and concepts. So what is math? What is math? Yeah, it's a big question, but I guess I would briefly say, and pe- a lot of people I know like to say that mathematics is a science of patterns. Hmm. Although I like to add that it's also in some ways an art. It's an art of making meaning from those patterns is one way to, to think about it. There's a, an art to it as well as a science. Yeah. So how would you characterize the difference? You mentioned art and science, but one thing that came through in your book is how you understand mathematics to be a practice, right? Particularly as you draw on Alistair McIntyre, and that seems to be the animating theme of your book is mathematics as a practice. So how do you characterize the difference between mathematics as a science versus mathematics as a practice? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, first of all, I guess I think of science as also a set of practices that people engage in, but in the context that I like to think about mathematics as practice, it's, it's a collection of, of virtues. Like people often think of math as just a set of skills, right? Right. A skill being something like knowing how to factor a quadratic right. uh, or knowing how to follow a certain procedure to get an answer. But I think math is actually much more broadly a set of virtues. I like to talk about it that way. Uh, virtues being uh, habits uh, of mind, dispositions, uh, character attributes that shape the way you look at the world. So, for instance, if I'm curious, that's an aspect of character, and it leads to certain actions. Like, you know, when I see an interesting question, I seek to learn more. And so, I think a virtue is a, a certain excellence of character that leads to excellence of, of conduct. And I think math builds properly understood, properly taught, properly learned, builds in us certain kinds of uh, virtues, like a, a persistence in problem solving, uh, like an ability to visualize a problem, an ability to quantify, to define, to strategize. You know, these are all various virtues that are part of the practice of doing mathematics. 
So I want to, and this is really the, the essence of flourishing, if to the extent that we understand flourishing to be the perfection of virtues towards a particular set of goods that are you know proper to the human person. So I want to move to this question of human flourishing. What author or thinker has been really influential in your understanding of the concept of human flourishing, what it means to live well? Yeah, I, I think the first person that I heard talk about human flourishing in a way that was very compelling to me was N.T. Wright, the theologian. And I think Wright was talking about this in, in the context of animating what does it mean to live in the world and and to understand our purpose uh, in the world as human beings who are spiritual and and why are we here? Uh, and so I I found that very compelling and it, it in many ways began to be a frame that I began to understand how we um, how we should live uh, in the world and also how I should approach my own discipline and that being mathematics. And of course it's it it's a big it's a big it's been a big theme for me to try to understand deeper questions for why I do what I do. And so I I uh, found that very captivating. So was was it that listening to NT Wright that was the epiphanal moment or was there something else that kind of sparked that connection between mathematics and the sense of of a life well lived? Yeah, I it was I guess it began with Wright and a since then, I've heard many other people talk about this this idea of human flourishing. I guess if I'd taken a philosophy class in college, I might have encountered this a lot sooner. But I, I do like that frame for understanding the, the big question, why. So I'm going to return to that question of pedagogy, particularly math. And, you know, my, 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 where I'm located is health sciences, particularly in nursing school. And I think a lot about how we would think about pedagogy differently if we thought about both the flourishing student uh, the the flourishing practitioner, but also you know ha- making these disciplines oriented towards the flourishing of others. But we'll return to this question of pedagogy uh, in a second. So, how did you choose those? Actually, I'll back up a little bit. Why did you choose to use the word desires rather than goods? Because those could arguably the, des- the thirteen desires that you talk about could also be described as goods. Oh yeah, I I guess I mean I don't have a I don't have a philosophical background, so I I guess I just began with the place that I started thinking about this question, which is, why is it that some people gravitate towards mathematics and other people don't? Why is math a hobby for some people and not for others? And when I think about the hobbies that I have or that somebody might have, I, you know, you, you wouldn't do something like a hobby unless it met some need that you have. Right. And so I began to ask the question, what are, what are the basic human desires that we might have? such as a desire for beauty or a desire for truth or a desire for community and how, and how does math meet those desires? And so I I guess I began thinking about this from that frame, thinking about desires. I I hadn't thought about them as, as goods, but they are goods. Uh, They are things that because we desire them and they're, they're basic, I guess I could think about it that way as well. Yeah. And to the extent that every desire that's a good desire is oriented towards some basic human, natural, basic human good. So how did you choose those 13? I can imagine there was probably other ones on the table that you excluded. How did you choose those 13 and not others? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And for those who haven't read the book, it's, I, I've oriented every chapter around a basic human desire and talk about how math meets those desires. I, I, uh, there were lots of potential ideas that came to my head. I guess I started just by picking the ones that I thought would resonate with people who, for instance, like myself, as a professional mathematician, there are several there that would resonate with a, a potential mathematician, such as a desire for beauty. That's probably the number one reason mathematicians say they, they study mathematics. 
But then I also tried to hit some basic human desires that were maybe not so obvious from the, the perspective of a mathematician, but maybe more obvious from the perspective of someone else who lives in the world and wonders why math is relevant, right? So the, the book is, is aimed at, at multiple audiences, but one audience is those who know, who study mathematics and know mathematics well, and those, there's another audience of those who don't. And so, you know, when you think about some of the things that human beings really gravitate towards, it's desire for community. But when I think about, you know, the best experiences that I have of doing mathematics, it's often in community. And it's, it's underrated, under underappreciated, I think, when we talk about math, because people tend to talk about math as just like, you know, a set of skills, right? right, right. And, and yet, if you talk to people who, en- who enjoy working and thinking mathematically, I think if you ask them to stop and reflect on it, they'd say, yeah, community is a big part of why I do what I do. And so I wanted to unpack that as well. Right. So, you know, as I look at these 13 desires they're achieved through the excellent practice of mathematics. I see that many of them can be realized through other practices, right? Like obviously community can be achieved elsewhere. Is there something uniquely effective about mathematics that helps us achieve these desires above and beyond other practices that might be oriented in the same way? Is there something unique about the practice of math? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, certainly many of the things I talk about, the desires and the virtues that are built by pursuing these desires are not unique to mathematics. And in that sense, my book can be can be viewed as an argument for the liberal arts, right? How mathematics is a liberal art, you know, and helps us to develop these these broad perspectives on the world. But there, are, I think, there are some unique ways in which math cultivates, for instance, a desire for beauty. I think if you've ever encountered the beauty of reasoning, I think that is probably a kind of beauty that is maybe unique to mathematics in the sense that, like. I think there are very few other disciplines where the act of reasoning itself is an experience of beauty. And in, and if it is, if it appears anywhere else, I would call that mathematical, right? This is part of the way I think about mathematics is that, you know, mathematics is good thinking, right? It's not, it's not good calculating. It's good thinking. I like to say anything a calculator can do isn't really math. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's uh, arithmetic in my, in, from my perspective is not really Okay. Yes. It, it's math in the sense that like, you know, you, there are certain rules that the universe obeys and arithmetic uh, are some of them, but you know, the, 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 the joy and the, and the, and the wonder in calculation is to be found in the understanding, right? It's not just in the calculating. What would I learn particularly about math from pondering an MC Escher painting? You mentioned MC Escher a number of times in your book. What are the math principles that i that I can ponder? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good example. If you think about how people respond to art, math is like that, right? Like the fact that, you know, what does M.C. Escher uh, often do? There's often a shift of perspective when you're looking at at an M.C. Escher print. You know, there's, there's the primacy of foreground and then, and then you look at the background, sort of doing the shift, or maybe there's an impossible waterfall that, you know, locally, if you look at part of the picture, it looks normal, but if globally, it doesn't make any sense, right? MC Escher's famous for, for, for pieces like that. And, uh, and math is like that, right? Like their math is, is looking at an idea from many different perspectives. That's one of the, 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 the amazing things that, you know, people begin to appreciate math. They're like, whoa, I can solve this problem in so many different ways. And from this perspective, this principle holds, right? And from that perspective, 
some other principle holds. That's very mathematical. The shift between going local and global, is, I think, is a big theme in mathematics as well. Um, and so his, his pieces are very mathematical in that way. He, he often appeals to symmetry, often appeals to one sense of, of pattern and order, but then, then playfully distorts them in some way. And that's, that's often what we find in math as well. Like, you, you know, you think there's some order. And then when you look at the big picture, something else unexpected happens. That's, you know, that, that beauty that people often express beauty as a form of surprise. Right. And that's, that shows up in math all the time. Like the fact that you think that, you know, what does it mean for a set to, to, to have infinitely many things in it? That, that seems like a very simple concept, but when you look, peel under the, the layers, you realize, whoa, there are many different sizes of infinity. That's sort of an unexpected surprise. So what's your sort of arcane corner of mathematics that you study from a research perspective? And in maybe three sentences, what's beautiful or compelling or unexpected about this very sort of arcane corner that you study? Yeah. Let's see. I study, it depends on who I'm talking to, how I frame it. If I'm talking to a mathematician, I would say I study geometric combinatorics, which is a study of a mixture of geometry and combinatorics, which is a study of, of ways of counting things. If I'm at a cocktail party, I would probably talk about game theory, which is the mathematical modeling of decision-making. And so what I do is I actually bring methods from geometric com and topological combinatorics to the study of problems in the social sciences, uh, namely the, the mathematics of decision-making. And that's, that's game theory. Uh, that's one way to think about game theory. Tell me about a moment you've had with game theory where you sort of had this breakthrough and you experienced some maybe transcendent moment that, that connected you with, the, with something particularly divine or beautiful. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Well, okay, also, I'll give you an example of something that I think is a beautiful result. It's not my result. Uh, John Nash, who many will recognize as, um, as a Nobel Prize winning, well, he's a mathematician, but he won a Nobel Prize in economics for, right. for proving that every game has an equilibrium. Now, what is a game is a, basically a set of players and strategies, and when players play strategies, it achieves some outcome. And we call a, a set of players and strategies an equilibrium when everybody's response to everyone else are the best possible in some sense. It's called an equilibrium. And it, it's called that because, you know, what Nash proposed is that, that games will naturally be found in equilibrium when people, you know, play a game long enough, they begin to realize what the best responses are to other others. Okay. So that's some fact, okay, that, that Nash proved. But the amazing thing is that Nat, Nash brought an idea from geometry and topology. Topology is a study of continuity. It's one way to think about it. Nash brought this, uh, an amazing idea. Let's see if I can explain it. <laughs> There's something called the Brouwer fixed point theorem. Okay. And I'll just see if for the podcast listeners, I'll, I'll have them imagine me holding up a cup yeah. of liquid. And the fixed point theorem says that if I slosh, so if I take a, 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 my cup of liquid and I take a picture of it before I slosh it around, and then I slosh it around, and then I take a picture after, that there's going to be a point in the, in the liquid, in the coffee, if you like, that is in the same point position in both pictures. Right. Even if I sloshed it around, right? It's kind of an amazing fact that there's always some point, maybe more than one, but always at least one point that is fixed. It's called a fixed point. That is, it, it doesn't, it's in the same position in both pictures. Now, 
that's a, a well-known result from this area called topology. And the beautiful, amazing, surprising thing is that that turns out to be the key to proving that every game has an equilibrium in this other area known as game theory. And right. for that, Nash won a Nobel Prize. Right. That's, and why? Because it's sort of an unexpected result that comes from a surprising uh, and uh, beautiful theorem in another field of mathematics. So that's another thing that's beautiful about it is it makes unexpected connections between things you thought were disconnected. And that connects to our, our feelings of transcendence, right? Like when you, when you have uh, an idea or you have an experience that's transcendent, it's often because you feel like somehow strangely connected to the universe in some sense, right? It's, it's seeing connections that you've never, you wouldn't have believed was possible. So I'm glad you bring up John Nash because I have another set of questions that have emerged. I've been reading this Chilean novelist named, I think it's Benjamin Labatut, I think his last name is. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. I've never heard it. Two books called, one's called The Maniac and the other is called When We Cease to Understand the World. And they're fictionalized accounts of many of the greatest mathematicians in the world. So real events, real stories, he fictionalizes, um, he fictionalizes them. The Maniac's about John Van Neumann and the When We Cease to Understand the World is about other similar types of um, mathematicians and physicists. So one central theme of the book is the co-location between genius and madness. So why is it that high-level mathematicians are so prone to madness? Mm. Or they at least seem to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 certainly there are many popular, in the popular conception, people often think about examples like that. John Nash maybe being one who was quirky and eccentric. I remember, you know, growing up watching, um, what was that dinosaur movie? Jurassic Park, right. <laughs> where they had right. the mathematician who was sort of a little bit <laughs> a little bit quirky. Yeah. Jeff played by Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I, I guess I would think, think about that in two different ways. I mean, one is that in some sense, you're just seeing a popular conception that, you know, I think there are lots of mathematicians who are not, you know, eccentric in that way. And it's probably because precisely because we, we don't appreciate the, the, the full set of virtues that mathematics brings that we only recognize one dimension of it and that, that you see so many examples of, of quirky or, or mad mathematicians, right? Like if you only think that math is about like solving, you know, calculations quickly in your head, well, there are lots of, you know, geniuses who may not have developed in other ways, but are very, very proficient at calculating in their heads. Right. So then we see, ah, gosh, every mathematician must just be a quirky mathematician, right? But so, I, you know, I would say that, you know, in, in one sense, I think we need to recognize more ways that people can be mathematical. And uh, when we do that, I think it would necessarily make that association. That being said, you know, the, the, you know, mathematics more narrowly defined when you see, you know, examples of quirky, mad mathematicians, you know, there is something that is that that is attractive right that 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 uh that you know even people who have have not had a chance to fully develop in other ways the fact that they they would gravitate to mathematics is off you know is is a form of i guess of comfort solace i'm not sure if that's the right way to put it that um that, that they can see and appreciate aspects of the world that we can't see is a wonderful thing um for 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 them and for and for us so this is a similar, but a little bit different question. Are there particularly pernicious vices that mathematicians are especially prone to when they don't practice mathematics well? 
because you talk a lot about the virtues that are associated with doing math well. Are there particular vices that I don't want you to call out your colleagues or anything, but you know, are there any vices that maybe maybe mathematicians are particularly prone to? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the the vices that any any vice can often be found in conjunction with some virtue, but maybe an, an overemphasis on certain certain uh, practices could could lead one astray. I mean, so an example might be the fact that uh, math allows allows us to clearly define things, to talk about what we what we mean with precision. I think could you know in some ways be so overdeveloped that we're prone to to try to over quantify things that shouldn't be quantified. Right. 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 Like, you know, if <laughs> to say that I love another person is an important, valuable, meaningful concept, but I wouldn't want to define it, uh, over define it in a sense that makes it more limiting. Yeah. As I was watching, I don't know if you've seen Oppenheimer, uh, the, the Christopher Nolan movie, but there's a sense in there in which I wonder if the folks at the Manhattan Project were overwhelmed by sort of curiositas, like this disordered curiosity that drove them to look into something so deeply that maybe they should not have been peering into, if that makes sense. And I wonder oh, if that yeah. might be operative in that as well within sort of very, very high level mathematics. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I haven't seen Oppenheimer and I should, but I mean, it, it also brings to mind a lot of the new technologies that are, are uh, very mathematical and are shaping our lives today. Artificial intelligence, to, to some extent, also social media, right? That's that's part of the the whole mathematical computing revolution. That's using algorithms to to feed us things that we desire. But you know, we've seen that if you if you only get fed things that you desire, that it leads to to uh, overindulgence, polarization, and that's not necessarily good for us. If I wanted to be a math explorer, given sort of the limitations of my time and in my, my station in life as a father and a husband, where would you suggest I start? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I can think of a few, a few ways. There are probably many more, but you know, one is if you're a, a parent, what parent doesn't enjoy watching their kids learn and pick up new ideas? I would say engaging in, in the playfulness that your kids have about life and the world, and especially about reasoning, is a good way to, to begin being a math explorer especially when it comes, uh, t- comes to numbers and uh, teaching our, our kids to flexibly use numbers, I think is, is uh, a place where we can ourselves begin to see the delight and wonder of, of reasoning. For others, uh, it might be picking up popular math books, you know, not textbooks, but books about math and the popular imagination. And that, that's another way, which I think I think what we really need actually is are people who have some idea of how math actually shapes the way we live and could shape the way we live. And these popular accounts are a good way to do it without getting into the technical weeds. Once you see some of that, you might actually be motivated to learn more. So I'm struck in your book by the fact that mathematics is in a very special way, uh, a glimpse into the divine, Right. Does studying math make it easier or harder to believe in God? Well, there, there are many ways in which mathematics uh, and the pursuit of the divine are, are similar. Like, you know, people often, people often refer to math using language that, that uh, sounds almost uh, like spiritual language, right? Like uh, the famous uh, mathematician, Paul Erdős, who was, who was actually, you know, kind of anti-religious, 
still like to talk about math as, you know, the, the, the best mathematical proofs were written in a book, you know, that, that got only, you know, now let's see, how, how did he put it? That there's a book in which all the, the most beautiful proofs of, of mathematics are kept, right? God's book in some right. sense. He wasn't even, you know, a, uh, a believer by any stretch of the imagination. But so people often have this, this sense of reverence and awe. When you see a beautiful mathematical idea, you have this transcendent feeling, right? So there's lots of connections. Uh, and so, you know, from, from that perspective, I think mathematics can, it does help people believe that there's some, some order, some rationale behind the universe. And it wouldn't surprise me if that evokes religious feelings. On the other hand, there's plenty of people who aren't religious in the, any traditional sense, but, but revere mathematics. And so if you, you don't have that inclination to believe in anything beyond that, it might lead you to worship mathematics itself. So one interesting thing about your book, and hopefully folks will pick up and read it, is the, the end of every chapter is a, a letter, that, uh, a letter exchange between you and a, a man named Christopher Jackson, who's um, an inmate in a, in a prison. And he discovered math late in life and is quite proficient at mathematics that he discovers this while he's in prison. And I found those sections to be very interesting, very moving. How does someone like Chris get missed in the school system? Why didn't someone realize when he was 12 what, how proficient he was at math? Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of Christophers out there that, that we don't recognize the potential in because often when you think about mathematical potential, you're thinking about something that's very one-dimensional, that's not the full range of virtues, but, but, you know, often in elementary school, it's all about speed, right? Like who computes quickly, right? And, and that's not even a thing when you get to the professional level to be fast or slow, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to me that people get that idea, but why do they get that idea? Because, you know, because our assessments, our homeworks, they're all worksheets, right? And there's, you know, filled with computation problems, but, but maybe not filled with joy and wonder uh, as much. So I think it's easy to, to miss students who have, who are proficient in other mathematical virtues, ones that might be, in fact, more important, being creative, being curious, being persistent in problem solving, being able to visualize, being able to abstract, right? And these are, these are hard. The reason they're, it's hard to miss these is it's easy to miss these is that it's, they're hard to measure, right? It's easy to tell if you can, you know, solve 20 problems that are computational problems, it's hard to actually assess whether somebody's creative. And so it's easy to miss the potential students and the potential, I would say of every student, right? Like I think all of us have the capacity to grow in mathematical ways of, of being and to, and to appreciate that. But when we say some people are math people and some people aren't, we're automatically prejudging people in a way that I think is unhealthy. So one thing I found interesting about your book is you definitely do talk quite a bit about the the intersection between mathematics and social power and sort of uh, our social life together. So are the rules of math, the rules inherent to mathematics, socially constructed? The rules, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's certain, there's certain, so, you know, mathematics is baked into the way the universe works, right? So in some sense, many of the things that you learn, you know, like addition, multiplication, distributed property, commutative property of integers, these are all baked in to to the universe in some sense. So those are not socially constructed at all. But but I think what is socially constructed are what we consider to be interesting, right? The choices we make about what questions to study and what questions to not, you know, not to study. 
I think when you get to more abstract layers and levels of mathematics, it's maybe less clear what the important properties are to focus on. And so you might have one axiomatic system that chooses to focus on certain properties. And that's, you know, that's also a social construction. But on the other hand, you know, over time, people begin to see ways of thinking about these things that some are more beautiful than others. And you generally naturally gravitate towards the beautiful ones. And when you do that often, you know, that's, that's maybe less socially constructed. There's this, you know, idea throughout math and science that, that often the most beautiful ideas are the ones that, that are the truest ideas. And I think that's true in mathematics as well. So if you had to put a number on it, (laughs) what proportion of the difference in mathematics achievement between men and women is socially generated as opposed to inherent differences in aptitude and interests? Oh, so that, yeah, there's a, there's a huge, big question. Um, But once again, I'm going to point to the fact that there are many ways to be mathematical and often these measures of math ability only focus on one dimension. And so it's, it's kind of a maybe missing, missing the mark in terms of thinking about, about, you know, ability. And of course, in terms of mathematical ability, proficiency, things like that, people often have, you know, like you just have a snapshot of what someone's able to do at a moment in time. And those are generally going to be normally distributed, you know, around some, you know, some shape. And you'll have often at the tails, certain extremes. And, you know, I would say that, that, you know, often because of the ways that society forms narratives around who does math and who doesn't math, do math that you'll often see at the, at the, at the extremes of the tails, uh, often more men than women. And that's not to say that I would, that I think that Matt, that, that inherently women and men are, have, have a difference in ability because there's many different measures of mathematical, you know, virtue. And it's not been my experience that women are less capable than, than men at mathematics. So now, of course, I'm forgetting the actual, the actual question you asked. So I'm very interested in men in nursing, right? Particularly yes. men in, in healthcare oh, professions. Yeah. Right. And so there's this real question about whether or not, you know, the differences in nursing are because men are less, you know, just naturally oriented towards things. Women are more naturally oriented towards people. And there's yes, obviously the right. bell curves that overlap where there's going to yes. be some men in nursing and some women yes, in engineering. Right. I see. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. And I find whenever I talk about this, most answers to this question collapse into it's all social construction. Men and women are exactly the same, or this is entirely differences in like organic brain function. So I'm wondering if how you think about this, maybe just in terms of like PhD differences and achieve PhDs in mathematics. Is this, is there some inherent difference between men and women or is it, this a social sorting uh, of some kind? That's sort of the, the, the root of the question. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think in, in some ways it's, there's, there's a mixture here that's hard to, untangle. And it is definitely true that women are discouraged from pursuing the highest levels in mathematics because of all sorts of, of reasons that are, that are social, in fact. And it's also, it's also true that there are, you know, a wide range of, of people who exhibit proficiency in math according to whatever measure you choose, right? And, you know, so I'm not saying that there are people who pick up math quicker than others, I don't think that there's a, you know, if, if you look at the broad spectrum of what it means to be mathematical, I think that it certainly seems true that women gravitate towards, towards uh, community, right? And being communal in doing, doing things, whether that be mathematics or other things. And 
And I think that plays out in, in sometimes in the way that, you know, who gets attracted to doing, to doing what they think math is, which often people think of as lone and solitary, right? So, so I don't know. There's a lot of things to unpack here. But, you know, if, if I had to look at the multi, multidimensionally at the many different ways of being mathematical, I, I think that math, I don't see overall difference, sexual differences in, in uh, math abilities. So I want to talk a little bit about pedagogy. Uh, you seem like you really like teaching, at least from, I got that from the book that you seem to really have a passion for teaching. So how has being located at Harvey Mudd influenced your understanding of flourishing in mathematics? It seems like a pretty special place. Yeah, I mean, Harvey Mudd is, it is a unique place because it is a, it's a, both a liberal arts college, which means students here come because uh, they're looking for a broad background in not just the sciences, but also the humanities. But it's also a tech uh, school that's focused on STEM. You know, all our students here are studying math or science or engineering. And so that's one unique aspect. Another unique aspect is that our mission statement, it basically explicitly talks about the need to train up scientists, engineers, mathematicians, well-versed in the humanities and social sciences and the arts, who have an understanding of the impact of their work on society. So there's a very strong focus on not just learning, you know, science, but to use it wisely and use it well. And, you know, I really resonate with that mission statement. Uh, I like the fact that I do want my, my students to see math as something that contributes to human flourishing for everybody. It has an aspect of, you know, wonder and joy. But, you know, when you see something that's wonderful and joyful, you naturally want to share it with other people, right? Like you should naturally want to share it with other people. And so it's not just for my own sake that I should be doing math or science. Um, it certainly should have some aspect of contributing to the flourishing of others. And I, and I resonate with that. So in what ways do grades get in the way of excellence in mathematics? Ah, uh, yes, that's a, that's a big, that's a big question. And I, it's something that I, that I thought a lot about, right? Like there's this, this, um, you know, when we measure people's mathematical proficiency, whatever measure we use, there's, um, maybe an undue emphasis or focus on that number as being a sign of somebody's work with self-worth uh, in either in mathematics or just in general, right? And often when somebody doesn't do well on some assessment, people look at that and say, oh, you're not a math person. You are a math person, like some instant judgment. And I, I like to say that, that grades are a measure of, of, an imperfect, possibly imperfect measure of your progress. You know, it's a snapshot in time, but it doesn't reveal your trajectory. And I guess because of the, the undue emphasis on, on people I have on grades, I guess I hope that people would, would um, relax a little bit about what a, a grade actually measures, right? It's a snapshot. It's not, it's not a trajectory. And I, I would say that even for students who are high performing, right? Like there are students who are high performing who sort of, start seeing, you know, somehow that their performance in math means that they're better than other people. Uh, and, and somehow they, they start seeing that as a measure of their own self-worth. And so one of the dangers of that is that people begin to identify, to lose the sense of joy and wonder in math itself and begin to crave the, the performance aspect of mathematics. And I think there's something deeply lost there. So last question, I know we're coming up on time. So do computers make us better or worse at math? Ah, that's a good question too. Uh, well, I mean, 
you know, do, do, uh, does watch is watching TV good or bad for us? Well, certainly you can have too much watching TV and there's a way to watch TV that's mindless and numbing and deadens you to the world. But on the other hand, there's wonderful movies that enrich us and make us think, right? Like, I think that's very similar to, to the, the question about computation. Like, do we sit back and just automatically trust computers to do things for us? Or do we think carefully about how they're used and, how, and why we should use them and what situations? I think it's a very similar question. So is it better or worse? <laughs> What's that? Oh, see, I, did, I didn't answer the question. <laughs> Are they better or worse for us? Uh, I'd say on the whole, they're better in the sense that they can automate things that we don't necessarily need to do ourselves. But we, we have to, to think about them wisely and, and how we use them, right? Like, and, and, what, and think critically about what we do with that, uh, that information. Yeah, so one potential argument that you... That you has made in the book is that computation is not math. Math is the recognition of patterns to the extent that the computer can help with the computations, which isn't really math anyway. It can get you really focused on the business of the pattern recognition and the understanding potentially. Yeah. 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 And of course, you know, computers can help us uh, begin to identify patterns, but we, we're the ones who are going to have to say, what's the meaning of those patterns? That's something that uh, I don't think computation is, is going to effectively help us do. Right. And maybe having your math students read more novels might actually help them figure out the meaning of the patterns as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I, uh, I'm in favor of that. All right. Well, Francis, well, this is really, really a lot of fun. I'm so grateful that you took uh, time out of your busy schedule to chat with me and I hope we can continue this conversation. We have very overlapping interests, so I hope we get to talk again sometime. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.